0: Support for this podcast comes from the Phil Smith Center for Free Enterprise at the FAU College of Business. The Phil Smith Center for Free Enterprise supports the vision and strategic plan of the College of Business to advance thought leadership in business. The center supports chaired professorships and research, educational programs for faculty members and students, distinguished visiting faculty, along with a lecture series and other educational programs focused on the principles of free enterprise and how those principles affect growth and prosperity. Learn more at business.fau.edu forward slash Phil Smith.
1: One of the great things about being the Dean of the College of Business here at Florida Atlantic University is that we get to invite distinguished scholars from around the world to come and share their thoughts with our faculty and students. And today, we're very pleased to welcome Professor Carol Alexander, Professor of Finance from the University of Sussex in the UK. Welcome, Professor Alexander. Hello. It's good to have you here. Professor Alexander has a very distinguished career in and out of academia as well as uh, uh, in the private sector doing trading strategies and mathematical modeling at the very highest level, as well as publishing and editing at the very highest level of the academy, too. So we're very pleased to welcome you here to Florida Atlantic University today and talk a little bit about some of your activities in both sectors. Thank you. Professor Alexander, I understand that one of your current areas of research and expertise is blockchain and cryptocurrency. Can you tell us a little bit about that?
2: Oh, there's an awful lot to say about that. Just a little bit is very hard. It's a massive subject. Ah, just a little bit. Well, this. uh, Bitcoin is not blockchain. Blockchain is the technology that will drive Web 3.0. Um, web 3.0 is necessary because web 2.0 is broken and, uh, we'll have to go back to checkbooks soon if, uh, we don't manage to make it more secure. Um, blockchains can carry smart contracts. Um, smart contracts are self, um, executing contracts, a little bit like, um, you put your money in the vending machine, and then it sort of self-executes to deliver it. But or you, uh, you, you you see something you like on the internet, Web three point zero, not Web two point zero, um, like uh, a car, uh, and you want to test drive it, so uh, it drives itself because you know by that time we all have self-driving cars um, you try it out, you like it and um, then uh, you you buy it all on the blockchain without any intermediary and nothing can be changed. It's what we call immutable. So the combination of immutability and smart contracts um, is what's transforming the global economy. It's not just the web. I mean all banks have private blockchains um, private blockchains um, are different to the Bitcoin blockchain um, or the Ethereum blockchain or the Ripple uh, or any other types of blockchains um, that are associated with crypto assets. Um, I won't use the term cryptocurrency. Um, The private ones are different because they still have a central authority. So, for example, R3, which is a consortium of banks, used to be Goldman Sachs, JP Morgan and various others, and then it got a bit larger. And so goldman sachs and jp morgan went off and made their own consortium Sony. but you know all these transactions like you know interest rate swaps or um any other like um trade finance or letters of credit for um shipping goods all over the world and things like that are now recorded on an immutable digital ledger that cannot be changed because of the way it's um constructed Unless the central authority decide to change it. And this is the difference. You see, Bitcoin, there is no central authority. The copies of that ledger are distributed all over the world in nodes, which all keep up-to-date copies of it. And it can't be changed um, because uh, of the way that the peer-to-peer network agrees on, um, on the transactions that it sees. And I better stop there because I could actually you know, carry on talking for hours and we don't have that long. Well, it, it
1: does strike me as uh, it's very interesting kinds of things. Our faculty over in the information systems area, uh, our faculty in the engineering computer science area are all working on various elements of blockchain, yes. as are some of our finance and economics faculty who are focusing a little bit more on fintech and yes. cryptocurrency. So I think Understand a, a bit of what you're saying. It is transforming all sorts of ways uh, that business is done, transactions are done, records are kept yes. uh, across many, many areas, uh, both in the university and in the the real economy and around the world. One of the things I, I hoped you could share with us a little bit is you've had a very interesting and a varied career moving in and out of the academy, uh, working with various uh, hedge funds and trading groups. And uh, it's it's quite impressive and, and really fascinating to me how you've been able to sort of uh, achieve so much on both the academic side, but also on the private sector side. Can you talk us a little bit through uh, sort of the the arc of your career and, and where you started and then uh, perhaps picking up in the in the master's piece and doing the work coming out of the London School of Economics and, and there and going into the private sector and then deciding to come back and get your PhD in mathematics and move on?
2: Uh, okay, well, actually, I started my PhD when I was 20, uh, before my MSc. I did a PhD in algebraic number theory <laughs> at that age, you just <laughs> so I really specialised early on.
1: <laughs> well, and and so my apologies for assuming right. that you pol- <laughs> that you followed thing. a uh, fairly a, a nor- the more normal linear path that no. that uh, most mm-hmm. folks do. Uh, so, but but talk us a little bit through that. It's obvious that you have a, a great deal of talent uh, and ability for mathematics, and so. Uh, applying that to real trading strategies did you find that uh, that mathematical ability really allowed you to enjoy what was happening in financial markets uh, understand them better than most uh, but why did you apply the mathematical skills in that particular area
2: okay well when I finished my PhD I decided that um, I would uh, well I got a postdoc um, and and the only area of ap- ap- applicability, at that time was cryptography. Um, And so the prospect of like going to work for NASA or something, you know, or um, just, or or the Fed or, or, you know, I didn't that's the dark side for me. Well, not NASA really, or you never know. Mm -hmm. Well, I won't go there. Um, So it was just, you know, war and, um, you know, cryptography applications now, of course, in blockchain fine, but in those days I didn't see my. I wanted to do something useful, and I, I didn't think that coding and, um, and spying and and that was what I wanted to do. So I um, uh, also my first husband um, wanted to go back to England, and so I decided I went go and work in the city, and I went to work for one of those old stockbrokers before the Big Bang called Phillips and Drew, that was then taken over by UBS, and that got my foot in the door. Um, working in a bank, and um, I, I started doing sort of semi academic work on valuing index link gilts and so forth there and then I went to the uh, to the MSC and did mathematical econometrics and um, e- uh, mathematical economics and econometrics um, um, after a couple of years of working writing lots of computer programs for various people and game theory in particular. I worked with Ariel Rubenstein on the bargaining games and things like that. I then took an academic job in game theory um, mainly um, but then because of my experience with econometrics and my experience in the city I was asked to consult for various banks and I ended up just being what I call a model architect where I write down the maths and um, maybe a bit of code and, and uh, then I work with an industrial sized computer programmer to build models so I um, I was in the master Department of Sussex at a time when there was a big draw from the city for me to design models like value at risk or, um, or any number. There's a whole lo- load of, of different pricing, hedging. Uh, I also went, actually, after a while, I dropped half of my appointment and went to work for Algorithmics. It used to be a Canadian company with big software. I was the academic director there um, and designed some models for them. Uh, and then I went full-time and worked for Nico, um And it was great because I had a team of PhDs building models of market risk for me. But then that job only lasted a month. Uh, I got paid £100,000 for working a month, plus my month's salary, because I had a guaranteed bonus. And just after I joined, they... um that they closed down the whole operation in london so that gave me time because i had a daughter by then who was quite young and my son was um was you know moved to london so i had two kids and so i just decided i was going to write a book called market models about financial models um and it's still in print actually um and then i went to be a professor of finance at the icma center in reading for a few years and um built up the uh, programs there introduced the first MSc in financial risk management Uh, there are many now Um, but um, I'm uh, and then I went back to Sussex my alma mater where I I started my my academic career um, about five years ago and um, then I was head of business and management built it into this business school it's become and that yeah so I didn't do very much research for a while um uh and I'm just now I'm just an ordinary professor and my bosses are my ex phd's so that's great <laughs>
1: <laughs> well i think uh any of uh any academics who have served in an administrative role, when they go back to, to being professors and just mm-hmm. have teaching and research responsibilities, uh, really value them.
2: Yes, absolutely. absolutely.
1: <laughs> One of the things I thought was also interesting as I looked over all your many accomplishments it, that I don't see uh-huh. on a lot of resumes Or a lot of CVs are that you have a couple of U.S. patents. Mm
2: -hmm. I
1: assume for some of your your mathematical models. Yes,
2: that's right. Yes, with the New York Stock Exchange um, for um, pricing and hedging exchange active exchange traded funds. Yeah, that's very interesting.
1: So. uh, do you mind talking a little bit – see, the first one of these is in 2009, and it says you got a patent for a, something titled Hedging Exchange Traded Mutual Funds or Other Portfolio Basket Products. Mm-hmm. So is this something that came about in, in the models that you were developing uh, with one of those firms or other organizations you were talking about or something yes, you just yes, did I was as employed individual? as a
2: consultant. Um, to design a model um, using high-frequency data for market makers to hedge their risks overnight um, from from holding ETFs, you know, redemption creation baskets, and uh, you know they they can't close out their books overnight, so they do have to hedge. And how do they do that when they've got an ETF on the Russell three thousand? Is it's not an easy task so we had to use you know what nowadays would be called machine learning but you know machine learning is just a buzzword really um no uh, so i used components analysis and clustering and you know this sort of what what people would call Big data analysis.
1: Expand upon that just a little bit. So, was this? I'm very familiar with the the process by which one writes an academic paper, but most of us uh, uh, in the academy don't ever get patents, at least not in the business Hmm. school. So, talk a little. If you don't mind, share a little bit of the experience about why did you decide to patent that? I didn't. Oh, the New York
2: Stock Exchange did.
1: Okay, very good. So they put that put that process through, and I imagine absolutely, that takes, yeah, oh, okay, yeah. Mm. very good. And so your second patent came two years later in 2011, out of a system for pricing financial instruments.
2: Well, oh, that's very similar. Yeah. It was the same same work really. One was pricing, and one was hedging, and it just took a while to because you know there's always these legal things. I had nothing to do with it, but um, that, that's really the same work.
1: Well, it's fascinating, nonetheless. <laughs> Very good. Congratulations. Now, I understand part of what brings you here is that you have co-authors uh, here on our faculty. Yes,
2: yes, and, Doug. And Doug, Doug coming. Yes, so, well, editor, actually, co-editor.
1: Okay, mm. so your co-editors mm. there... On a new
2: book called Corruption and Fraud in Financial Markets. Very
1: good. Has that, is that published now or is it getting ready to come out? Or getting ready it just... to come out. Very good. We've got all very the
2: chapters. Good. We're editing it. So we've got about um, – we've got 21 chapters. Um, it's going to be a very, very big book, um, much bigger than Wiley's initially anticipated, I think.
1: Well, very good. Did you – tell me a little bit about how you, you two decided to, to go about editing that volume and your interest in that. Does that flow out of the blockchain kind of technology that you were talking about earlier?
2: No, it's because I'm interested in corruption. I mean, there's corruption everywhere. Corruption drives financial markets. It, it, it's every, everything's corrupt. And, um, it's about time that I put everything together in one place for young people who, you know, realize this. They can, instead of having one book on tax avoidance or one book on, on LIBOR fixing or, you know, these, these books that have been written about in one particular type of, of fraud or manipulation, put it all together and make it accessible and then broadcast it. And it'll help young people get a voice because something's got to happen. Well, very good. That sounds
1: sounds quite interesting. One of the things that we're doing here at this university in the College of Business is our uh, School of Accounting actually has a center for uh, forensic accounting, detecting right. fraud. And uh, unfortunately, uh, South Florida has a, a reputation for being a center uh, for fraudulent activities in, in a number of markets. So <laughs> – Our accountants are working to uh, both detect and and reduce that fraud and train other accountants to uh, be able to detect that as well.
2: That's wonderful. Are they using Benford's Law and things like that? That's quite often used. It, it may well be. It's like the sort of numbers that should come up. And then if you make up the data, uh, yeah, the numbers, same they don't come up, up in the right way as naturally occurring data. It's called Benford's Law. It shouldn't be called Benford's Law. It wasn't invented by Benford. It was invented by somebody else. I forget his name now. But it's called Benford's Law because he, he just made it more popular.
1: Popularized it. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. Well, so now that you've got that book uh, about ready to come out, that collected volume, what do you see yourself doing next?
2: Well, uh, apart from the 15 papers that are still in preparation because of the time I was an administrator, I've <laughs> got to get those out. I think I'm going to write a book on, um, on blockchain and crypto and make it more accessible because there isn't really any good book out there. I had to teach myself. And then I might write a novel very good
1: historical fiction
2: i don't know we'll have to see what comes out i'd like to write a novel like the mandibles by lionel shriver it's really good ah it's like um it's what happens when a a cryptocurrency called the Bankor becomes the unit of 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 transfer of value and the dollar no longer you know the, the dollar basically defaults so it's quite interesting it's a good book
1: Very good.
2: Very good.
1: Well, we are so glad that you've taken the time to to come over and visit with us here at Florida Atlantic University and share those thoughts. And uh, we wish you the very best. And uh, we're sure we'll see great things uh, further to come. So thank you very much for being here. Thank
2: you very much. It's been a great pleasure. Thank you.
1: To learn more about our activities and upcoming events, please see our College of Business website, business.fau.edu.
0: Dean Gropper Presents is part of the FAU College of Business Podcast Network. To learn more, visit us at business.fau.edu forward slash podcasts and follow Dean Gropper on Twitter at FAU Business Dean.